The views, comments, stories, and opinions shared within this podcast are my own or those of my guests, and in no way represent the views of the company or companies that I or we work for. The stories, events, and tales shared within this episode may or may not have happened in the manner in which they are told. They may or may not have even happened at all. The details have been changed to protect the innocent and the guilty alike. This is Squawk Identity. You're listening to Squawk Ident, an aviation podcast dedicated to the journey and the challenges surrounding the life and career of Aviator Tony, his co-hosts, and his guests. Together, we will explore the many pathways to an aviation profession, the realities of what a professional aviator can expect in today's marketplace, and we share many stories along the way. I'm your host, Aviator Tony, an airline pilot currently flying for a U.S. legacy airline with close to 20 years on the flight line. This is episode 69 of the Squawk Ident podcast, recorded on the 29th of January, 2021, from the Aviator Sound Studios from somewhere in Southern California. On this episode of Squawk Ident, Aviator Tony and Captain Roger discuss PSA's decision to ground most of their fleet and the effects it has had on the mainline partner. We follow up with Jetpack Man, ATP flight school agreements with Frontier Airlines, We will discuss rusty pilots back on the flight line and much more. Now that our pre-flight is complete, let's get ready to push off the gate, start up our virtual podcast engines, and get ready for takeoff. Squawk Ident episode 69 is officially underway. To help me get flight 69 off the ground and on our way of the Squawk Ident podcast, is an exceptional aviator and co-host. He is an award-winning trophy-hoisting tennis champion, a professional CFI, I, MEI flight instructor, a former freight dog, former airline pilot, a current King Air flight instructor, a Falcon 2000 commander, a captain, and a corporate operator as well. After a long day of short flights from somewhere in San Diego, California, where he sits in his freshly painted oasis of chaos, please help me in welcoming back to the show, Captain Roger. Roger? How you doing? I'm doing all right, Tony. How are you? It's good to be back. It's been a uh, it's been a little while for me. Yeah, it has. But that's good. You've been busy. You've been flying. I have been busy. I've been well, I was busy flying the uh, the last episode that you did this past week. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, hopefully most people can't see me right now, but I've got the five day non flying uh, scruffy beard going on, uh, which will be taking care of within the ensuing hours because I go back to work tomorrow. But uh, yeah, definitely been busy. It's been good keeping me out of most trouble. Yeah, no, that's, I I know the feeling actually right before this uh, recording, uh, I was shaving about two and a half weeks worth of stubble (laughs) off. That's right. I was, I was going to record with it. And then I, and I looked at myself and I kind of scared myself. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I thought, oh, God, I've been going around the house with this for the last few weeks. Yep. Uh-huh. And I'm proud of it. That's what us pilots do, right? We're, uh, when we're not flying and we don't have to shave, I really don't know any pilot Why that's out there. Why do something that you don't need to do? That's <laughs> what I always say, you know? Why do anything extra? Yeah. Well, my daughter, she, I love it when she's like, Dad, don't hug me. Your beard is scratchy. Like, oh, really? Come here. <laughs> oh, I, I got my daughter. It was a couple nights ago. And I turned it into a punishment for her. Like, I don't remember what she was supposed to do. Uh, I think she was supposed to do something kind of school related. And I just started what, whiskering. 
I think they was, <laughs> he referred to as whiskering her face. I, oh. I think I might have actually maybe burned her a little bit. Oh, but, that's a uh, please child nobody cruelty. report me out there. Please, yes, <laughs> he's fine now. I promise, not permanently scarred. <laughs> little exfoliation there going on, huh? Yeah, yeah. Why not? So no, I'm glad. I'm glad to see that you've had a little bit of time and. Um, to get some stuff done around the house. And, you know, I've been doing pretty much the same thing. I, I was very fortunate to, uh, not have much flying this month. Uh, I absolutely took advantage of that. And, you know, I came down there uh, a couple weeks ago, we were working together on the, the property there and, uh, kind of mentioned that on the last intro, uh, on the previous podcast that, we were down there swinging hammers together and it was kind of cool to, to hang yes, out. We were yeah, doing stuff other than podcasting uh uh together but uh yeah it was cool i really appreciated the working with you and 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 coming down and and getting to hang out so oh please yeah thank you yeah that was fun uh then i got so inspired by all the work we've been doing in the past few months that i started to pick up all the work around here at the house that i've been kind of putting off because i've been using the pandemic as an excuse it's like oh well we really shouldn't spend any money or invest any time right now we should wait and and so, yeah, in this past few weeks, I've pretty much got everything ready to go to remodel a bathroom myself and sprinkler systems and a whole new landscaped yard and, and you know, landscape fabric is down. And now I have to go and have some rock delivered and going to spread that out. And, you know, home ownership, it's, it's something that I think is disappearing slowly because the newer generation, I hear it all the time, even from my very own daughter said, I'm never going to own a house. I'll have an apartment or con. I don't have to deal with a yard and cutting. <laughs> well, yeah, I think there's a, a couple different issues at play there, but, uh, you know, the, the work being, being only one of them. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's definitely something I enjoy. I enjoy sitting out in the backyard and watching the aircraft, uh, fly very close patterns to Ontario over my house. Uh, I watch Amazon prime basically once an hour. <laughs> come in on a short final in Ontario. Um, and speaking of, we had a quite exciting weather phenomena here in Southern California the other day. Here I was at Home Depot with a flatbed full of building material, and I'm sitting there in line waiting to, to pay, and I look out at these giant doors that are, that are in front of me, and it was dumping snow, like for four minutes. It was like we were in Chicago in the middle of the winter. It was dumping snow in Southern California. I, I couldn't believe it. I hadn't seen that happening here probably in at least a decade or two. Yeah, we had uh, severe weather, severe Southern California weather for, what is it, just that one day? And you had texted me, it's snowing at my house, and I, I actually didn't really believe you. Yeah. Actually, I didn't believe you at all. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it was, it was funny because here I am, I'm, and it only lasted like four minutes. By the time I paid, I was going to run outside and, and do a little live video and, and post it and, and send it to you. And, uh, and it was done by the time I paid, it was finished. And yeah. so I'm here, I am pushing the cart, the whole, everything's wet. I load the car. And as soon as I jump in, 
I look at my windshield and it's covered in snow. <laughs> so I had to turn the wipers on and you know, it's gone instantly because it was, it was above freezing. It was just right. one cloud that just decided, uh, yeah, I'm done. <laughs> it just started to dump. Um, I tried to see if they were reporting it uh, uh, at Ontario on their METAR and nope, uh, they did not report snow. I guess it happened so quickly. It wasn't, it was a non-event, but um, it was exciting. It was very exciting. So for those of you that are in the Midwest or around the world in uh, places where you actually get four seasons. And, Forgive and, us. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> We're from California. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, 62 degrees and my family's all wearing hoodies and beanies. And <laughs> you know, last week was, you know, I was flying last week and I actually kind of got bit by the weather, but it was really odd because like, we had the Santa Ana's. And it was it was kind of warm, but then it was Santa Ana winds because we had all those winds. But then the temperature dropped. And then I actually on one of my flights, unforecasted, I actually ended up diverting because even though we had Santa Ana's. Literally in between flying between L.A. and San Diego. We got fog that rolled in Uh. and had to go mist and actually divert. Wow. Um, The whole thing was just last week. There was it was odd weather for down here in Southern California on a couple fronts, snow being, being only one of those. Yeah. You know, we're used to the, the events like the June gloom and, and all these events where the low lying fog comes in from cooler air coming in over the ocean and, and over the land and then it hits the land. Yeah. So there's a known commodity for us here. Yeah. But to have it here in January, that's kind of unheard of. I mean, we're, we get one or two days of actual rain where you, you need an umbrella because <laughs> here in Southern California, you rarely need an umbrella ever because <laughs> um, it's just sprinkle sprinkling, you know, it's not a big deal, but to have it rain like yesterday here, it rained all day and, and today and, and it was great. Uh, it, but it's cold. You know, it's in the forties. We're, we're like, what the heck? It's a, it's a freezing snap. <laughs> Again, for all of you people in the rest of the world, we apologize yeah yeah we're just not used to it and so it's exciting for us um there are so many humorous uh, youtube videos out there of southern californians uh experiencing uh rain 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 drizzle and like stopping work to go outside to see it rain you know (laughs) it happens but no it's it's good it's great uh to experience that and and i'm glad we've been getting a lot done uh but let's talk about aviation uh we've been not flying very much, uh, or at least I haven't. Uh, you've been doing a lot of uh, short flights, and you've been telling me not many layovers, which is great. You get to be home in the evening with your family. How has your schedule been in the past couple of weeks? It's kind of been a feast or famine, I guess, is the, is the best way to describe it. There was a stretch of where I wasn't doing very much. That was a couple of weeks ago when you had come down and we were doing stuff around the house, and then I went on a really busy stretch, and there were several day trips in there and i think there was only one that was was an overnight but it's like a day trip day trip day trip um and then i finished up on sunday and then i've been off this week and then i go back starting tomorrow for another four days and then i'm off for a few days and then things get a little bit wonky after that but um yeah yeah it's kind of been stretches actually yeah yeah, and it's funny because uh, I think with the flying picking up again in the industry, uh, the the numbers have been a little bit more consistent now. Uh, and, and I just got an email from my chief pilot here that's 
was ringing as we started this podcast, uh, indicating that he felt like things were getting back to normal. He could see uh, more passengers in the in the terminal and and flights going out more full more often. And this is great. This is great news. Um, and I think this uh, rollout of the the vaccine that we've seen, even though, you know, we're talking about shortages and not enough to go around because everybody wants it now. I want it now. And so, but, you know, give it a, give it another 60, 90 days. I think more options are going to be available and, and, uh, and we'll start to see a lot of returning to the flying, as we've mentioned, basically for the last year that we've been, that we've been talking about this, this Corona virus and pandemic is that we're going to see this rubber band effect. It might not be snapping back to normal as quickly as we originally hoped, uh, but definitely all these upward trends are much better. I know the quarterly uh, numbers came out for many airlines, uh, and it looks like their fourth quarter, they didn't lose as much as they thought. I know Southwest and American both uh, had posted information about that recently. Uh, But PSA did something just yesterday that caught my eye. And the way I discovered it is I received a notification on my company email indicating if you're a commuter, be very cognizant of who you're flying on because uh, there are, uh, there's an airline out there, a PSA, that has grounded almost the entirety of their fleet. I mean, what the heck? How, how did this happen? Um, and, and is this a severe thing or not? And so I did a little research and I found uh, an article. Uh, Breaking news, PSA Airlines grounds a fleet impacting American Airlines' connectivity. This from Simply Flying Magazine in an article published just yesterday, January 28th, from Daniel Martinez Garbuno. Uh, And this uh, was entitled, Breaking, PSA Airlines grounds fleet impacting American Airlines' connectivity. Uh, The article states that... uh, The regional carrier PSA Airlines has temporarily removed most of its aircraft from service to complete a standard inspection. Suspect. This measure is impacting American Airlines' connectivity because PSA has a fleet of about 130 Bombardier aircraft, many of which operate its regional routes. So what's going on? Uh, Earlier today, which was yesterday, uh, on Thursday, PSA Airlines advised that most of its fleet is grounded. It added that it is working to resolve the issue and sincerely apologizes to their customers for the inconvenience. PSA Airlines is an American regional airline flying under the American Eagle brand for American Airlines. It is a wholly owned subsidiary of the American Airlines Group, or AAG. In a tweet, American said, in a tweet, We're working to accommodate our mutual PSA airline customers as quickly as possible. The airline added that passengers can check their flight status on its website. But have you ever heard of this, Roger? Uh, 130 airplanes, almost the entirety of their fleet gets grounded overnight for a, what did they call it? Standard inspection? I can't really say that I've heard of an entire an airline's entire fleet getting grounded. You know, from time to time, we do hear things like this for for various reasons that, you know, a a subset of airplanes will get grounded for some kind of maintenance. I I hate to to try and speculate exactly what was going on. Um, And and as a side note, these planes are all back flying again. They have cleared the issue. And so, you know, just to get that out there, uh, it's not an issue already. 
it was a little bit, I, I'm surprised for American, it was probably a little surprising to all of a sudden have that amount of feed, uh, primarily from the East Coast, where PSA operates, to have that amount of flight cancellations and a bunch of airplanes pulled out of service. Um, yeah. Well, according to... You know, from the little bit that I saw, you know, from an overall safety standpoint, thankfully, I don't think it was going to be that big of a deal, but it definitely was an odd event. Yeah, we were talking about all they had to do is tighten three bolts and the aircraft yeah. were returned back to service. Uh, for, again, from this article, they say, according to planespotters.net, PSA Airlines had 130 airplanes, 61 Bombardier CRJ 700s and 69 Bombardier CRJ 900s. And according to AirlineGeeks.com, up to 122 flights operated by PSA Airlines were canceled. So why? Americans said out of an abundance of caution. Well, a few days ago, the FAA published an airworthiness directive for the Bombardier BD-100 airplanes that has been in effect since January 27th of 2021. According to the FAA, the AD was prompted by a report that corrosion was found on the shock strut cylinders during unscheduled maintenance of the nose landing gear. Now, we've kind of read through this article and, and talked about how it doesn't seem like the two are related. And I can see how a major airline like American could decide, hey, well, even though that's not our particular, it's the same manufacturer, let's take a look. They didn't really tell us that was the case. As a matter of fact, in a statement sent to Simply Flying or Simple Flying, uh, is an American Airlines spokesperson told them that out of an abundance of caution, PSA Airlines has temporarily removed most of its aircraft from service in order to complete necessary standard inspection of the nose gear door, not the strut, uh, which uh, we are working with PSA and the FAA to immediately address the issue. We're working with our customers to rearrange their accommodations on other flights, and we're working to return the impacted aircraft to service. And as you mentioned, they were out overnight, and every single one of them is now back on the line from, from what we heard. 390 nuts and bolts. That's it. So something to do with the landing gear door, the nose landing gear door. Now, we were kind of discussing this, there are a lot of CRJ aircraft out An there. operation for American and the other uh, oh, all of them. carriers. United, Delta, even, even Legacy has a few of those, I heard. So Everybody's flying those. Yeah. So why was PSA the only airline to effectively do this emergency grounding of every aircraft, but it's a standard inspection that couldn't have been done at the next phase check? So something is going on whether it's an internal audit that discovered something that they were doing incorrectly um i don't know yeah but there's always a possibility i mean bombardier makes several different uh, variations of airplanes kind of going along with what you're talking about i believe one of those one of those unscheduled maintenance inspections was on a challenger aircraft which is a business variant a business jet variant of a bombardier product you know, maybe there was some misinterpretation on what exactly was applicable to which airplanes and PSA missed it. And, you know, during their internal audits, they said, oh, hey, you know what? We've really got to get this done. Tighten it up. Um, yeah. You know, hopefully, and the good thing, I think, is that the system worked the way that we would want it to. As I understand it, this was an internally discovered thing that they then self-reported to the FAA. Hey, you know, we've got this issue. 
they were upfront about it. Yeah. They, they did what was, they did the necessary, took the necessary precautions, did the necessary work. And, you know, 24 hours later, we're back up to what it sounds like is normal operations. Yeah. And, and in the article, it also, as you mentioned, it does mention that the corrosion that was found on the Bombardier BD-100s um, and the 300 Challenger, it, that was separate from what had been reported from the American Airlines grounded PSA fleet due to issue despite being related to CRJ family. Uh, nevertheless, American Airlines is told simply flying that this is not the case. It is not related from one to the other. So this is definitely something that was happening internally with three bolts in the landing gear doors that had to be inspected. And for they, whatever reason, they weren't. They self-disclosed to the FAA that they had an issue. They were going to ground it. And, you know, it, coming from a perspective of, you know, like a regulatory and liability perspective, they did the right thing. In my, at least in my, um, my thoughts, that they absolutely did the right thing. Yeah, it it's kind of an inconvenience to people, uh, even pilots that are trying to commute because PSA is a Charlotte-based company, a regional carrier, and it takes care of a lot of traffic for the smaller communities in that area. And a lot of pilots rely on that to to commute to work. Well, you know, we last couple of shows we've been really having a good time with Jetpack Man. You've heard about this guy, Jetpack Man. Jetpack Man. Here we go again. It brings a smile to Roger's face every time I even <laughs> utter those words. It is awesome. Well, uh, I, a couple of days ago, I I got a. a an article sent to me from our very own Captain Rogers saying, hey, I think we, we've cracked it. I think we've cracked it. And very interesting. Um, and we kind of talked about this being a possibility, but uh, very interesting. In a follow-up uh, from an article written by Jeremy Krozenewski, I hope I'm not butchering that too bad, from autoblog.com, he writes in a follow-up article uh, from January 21st entitled, LA's Mysterious Jetpack guy could actually be a human-shaped drone. What? And this is something we were talking about it possibly being. I'll have a link in the show notes, but in this article uh, entitled, LA's Mysterious Jetpack Guy Could Actually Be a Human-Shaped Drone, it says, is the flying mannequin in a camouflage jumpsuit any less weird than a real-life Iron Man? It turns out that the mysterious case of Jetpack Guy casually flying around at a few thousand feet above the ground in California, could actually be something completely different, albeit just as dangerous. According to documents collected by The Black Vault via The Drive, I don't know, don't ask me, through, <laughs> through the Freedom of Information Act and American Airlines pilot who made the jetpack sighting reported to the FBI, what he saw was actually like the drone in the YouTube video that they mentioned in the article. Now, for those of you listening to you on the podcast, uh, you're not going to be able to see what's going on here, but I do have something that I'd like to share video and we'll, we'll go on from there. In the title, it says, you know, a mannequin RC flying man scale one, one, uh, flight demonstration. It looks like a per, I mean, even from close up, it looks like a person in there. Absolutely. All right, so in this video, we see a li what seems to be a, a life-size mannequin drone, and it's 
<laughs> the guy's controlling it from the ground. And looking at it, it looks just like a person in there. They got the <laughs> camo outfit and the... Oh, my God. It's, it's spectacular. But I could see how... Can you imagine hitting that while flying around? Oh, well, the safety aspects of it remain remain very real. Um, you know, I had a good time with this for two or three weeks ago. Yeah, <laughs> two or three weeks ago, I remember. Um, you know, I'm not one of those guys that subscribes to a lot of conspiracy theories. You know, I'm sure that they do exist. However, I'm not big into them. I feel much better about this because I thought the whole thing was pretty ridiculous that there was some jetpack man stupid enough to go flying around at three thousand <laughs> feet around the southern california los angeles greater los angeles airspace um this is much more plausible to me um not to say that the safety issues are not still very real because they are do you know don't get me wrong about that but uh can you imagine the guy whoever's on the ground controlling this drone just must be having a field day with they're, it oh my god they're probably cracking up i i, I would surprised that they haven't posted anything on social media or youtube or something of a video of it to check it out because i'm sure now that the fbi is involved that's <laughs> ding 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 yeah. but uh from the video uh for those that aren't able to see it as you can see the video depicts a radio control drone with two propellers attached to a backpack that's fitted to a mannequin the dummy uh, seen here is uh, in full camouflage jumpsuit and boots and it it isn't necessarily the same one that may be buzzing the commercial flights in Los Angeles, but it does prove that such a human-sized drone is possible. Very possible. And yeah, it, it's still not official. The mystery has uh, not been solved yet, and the appropriate authorities are still investigating the situation. But hey, as soon as we <laughs> get more definitive <laughs> explanation. When we have confirmation of an actual drone. <laughs> We'll let you know. Oh my God. This it's ridiculous. Um, this is what we're talking about. <laughs> Drone jetpack man. Uh, I couldn't help. I saw that article before I before I sent it to you. I couldn't help, but uh it did put a smile on my face. I started laughing and I said, I need to I need to let uh Aviator Tony ah, know about jetpack guy. The drone. The drone. Yeah, we thought it might have been a Mylar balloon, a, you know, like a little astronaut Mylar balloon. But, you know, who knows? Uh, and at those speeds, when you're on approach to class Bravo airspace and you see something whiz by, it looks like a person. Yeah, it'll freak you out. <laughs> oh, man. But, hey, we just thought we'd uh, update everyone on that. And uh, some some more exciting news. I think now that we've seen these different stages in our careers and in our industry uh, as professional pilots. Uh, we've seen the cyclical nature, the ups and downs. And what we're seeing now, even that we're, I don't know if we're say that we're in the middle of the pandemic. I think we're more over the hump um, in terms of our careers, uh, not in terms of, of its effect on society. But uh, I, I can see how there's flying starting to ramp up and airports starting to get busier and safety precaution protocols have been now in place for a while and we know that they work so we're starting to see a demand start to creep up of pilots in the future and i've i've seen articles recently from united from alaska from southwest and now a new article that uh, indicates atp flight schools 
will form pilot pathways with Frontier Airlines. This is exciting news for a low-cost carrier to partner up with a flight school to ramp up their availability of potential prospects to become airline pilots. So I, I got excited when I saw this. Roger, have you seen this? Uh... I did see that there was a an agreement with ATP and Frontier Airlines. Um, I didn't look into the specifics of it. You know, I think that it's it was really good. I think the best part of it was really good to see that even in today's environment, that there still is that light at the end of the tunnel. And I think that was the biggest thing, the biggest takeaway for me. Um, and, you know, that being said, you know, those ultra low cost carriers, um, I think that they are poised to, to take on a, a much greater share of the, especially the domestic flying. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I read something, just a short blurb somewhere about how this, you know, getting hired on with, you know, the frontier who's, I think they're expected to double their fleet in the next two or three years. Yeah. Their projections have been Southwest mm -hmm. in, in the eighties. Yeah. Um, because I think that especially the pandemic, you know, even without the pandemic, I know that frontier was looking at doing that with their fleet, but I think that the leisure domestic flyer is probably where the greatest growth in domestic air travel could be. And it, I mean, yeah, they're going to need pilots. The, the pilot shortage is still real, even if just delayed for five years or whatever it will be. Yeah. Um, well, I think it's less than that. For, it's for only going to be a few years because uh, probably there's an article here from the Associated Press that they uh, published out from newswire.com on January 25th, 2021 from Denver. This uh, article mentions that the Frontier Airlines and ATP flight schools have formed a Frontier Direct program, which targets ATP graduates and CFIs for employment as Frontier Airlines first officers. So in the Frontier Direct program, ATP graduates and instructors will progress from ATP straight to the flight deck at Frontier after enhanced ATP CTP training that includes additional Airbus A320 full motion flight simulator experience. The new partnership offers pilots an accelerated path to a rewarding career with Frontier while providing Frontier access to a high-quality pool of qualified pilot applicants, dedicated future employees, and advocates of the Frontier brand. So we kind of looked into this because it kind of sparked my attention that uh, what kind of agreement is this? Is it like a, almost like a flow-through agreement? like some of the partnerships that some of the other carriers have, or is this more of a preferential hiring? And I think it's the latter. Uh, the article goes on to say that after completing the flight training at ATP and you go through their airline career pilot program, graduates gain flight experience with ATP as paid flight instructors. They usually build about 1,500 hours of flight time, and then they'll be recommended for an interview. Frontier Airlines. So it's basically preferential interview treatment. After the candidate is selected and the interview process is complete with Frontier, applicants would receive a conditional offer of employments and continue working towards their 1,500 hours, which is the minimum for an ATP certificate before you can go on to a, uh, as an airline transport pilot. And once they complete that, they would transition to Frontier as the pilot demand. Uh, warrants. So this is pretty cool. You end up with 
full motion Airbus sim time. I'm sure it's part of the program that you have to pay for. Uh, but knowing that as long as you don't bang up an airplane, you've complete your training, that you get preferential hiring at a pretty good size airline. So it's considered it's a major airline. airline. And it's growing and they have their Airbus fleet is their projected aircraft purchases are like you said they're astronomical so this is exciting i think it's kind of you know it's good for for everybody involved it gives atp the ability to you know drum up business for them because they can offer they have something to offer i think for frontier they're probably trying to pull they're trying to pull some of the guys away from the legacy carriers who will be no doubt hiring in the next three to five years so Frontier will try and pull from the legacy carriers and get some people into their program as early as possible. ATP gets gets some business from that. It's kind of a win-win for everybody. And I don't and at the same time, I don't think that, you know, Frontier pilots or or aspiring Frontier pilots, they're gonna take a whole lot of spots either. Cause I think it's only a few hires, new hires per month that those guys would get anyway. Right. So I think well, it's a win-win-win. Yeah. Four ATP graduates have already completed the program in a proof of concept that started in 2020. So just a year ago, they started the program. The four pilots have already merged onto the flight line, the Frontier. And after successfully completing their new hire training in IOE, they're like, hey, this program works. And, you know, as yourself, a former ATP graduate, you know, you, you've kind of experienced this. If they had this when you were going through, I mean, would well, you have jumped on that chance? Or do you think it's more... <laughs> I, I mean, without a doubt, yes. I mean, let's. I mean, just look at it from an economic standpoint. We'll assume, you know, this is just a basic assumption. But for me, when I went through ATP, I, I, I finished my college degree, and I went to ATP, and I finished up at eight, and I got hired at ExpressJet at age twenty-three. Imagine if I'd gone through the ATP program and finished, and instead of being hired at ExpressJet at age twenty-three, I was hired at Frontier Airlines when I was twenty-three years old. And can you imagine the the career path, the career, the career yeah. that I would have had? Well, if you would have stuck with just staying at Frontier, you'd have been at the... Just stay at Frontier for my entire career. Yeah, you would have been a captain. They have the largest 320neo fleet in the U.S. If and... you're 23 years old right now and you can go through this program, this is a, a no-brainer. Yeah. I mean, you're going to have 30 years at a growing carrier with with a 401k exponential salary increase and quite frankly you know frontier will get a little bit of a bad rap because of their first year pay in comparison to the legacies but if you're 23 that $55,000 a year or whatever it is when you're 23 is still going to seem like you're a king yeah and within three years you'll be a captain you're <laughs> going to be a 26 year old captain of an airbus 321 yeah a lot of times i think pilots they see a brand and they think the brand is more important than yep. anything. And I, I'm not going to dispel that. I, I think that everybody's decision and path is unique and they have to do what's best for them. And to have an opportunity to go to a flight school and go from flying Pipers and Senecas and, and uh, Cessnas to the right seat of an Airbus, Airbus versus the right seat of maybe a Bombardier or an Embraer. Come on, you're getting a type Who certificate out of that, that is that is going to be universal, not only in the U.S., but around the world. Absolutely. So, 
So yeah, it's a no brainer. The whole world is flying those Airbuses. I mean, really, because we still only have two aircraft manufacturers out there, and Airbus being one of them. Yeah. So yeah, this is great, great news, and coming at a time when I was not expecting this this early on. I thought once the demand starts to starts to build, and you know, they right now there are plenty of pilots that are qualified that can easily, you know, maybe they've been furloughed or maybe they're on a leave of absence and they think maybe I don't want to deal with this and I'm going to go to a company that's growing rapidly, a low cost carrier with luxury or vacation flying. That's the future, at least for the time being, as business flying kind of slows down and, and is going to be a lot slower to come back. Uh, that's the, the vacation destinations are where the money is right now. So this is good news for for the low cost carriers, and it's good news for aspiring pilots that want to get out there and and get their foot in the door. Don't you know if your end game is to be a a FedEx driver or a, a UPS driver or Amazon Prime guy? Hey, that that's great. But in the meantime, especially if you're young enough to you have twenty thirty years ahead of you, get in there and get that experience. It's not about the bigger jet; it's about the opportunity that a type rating is going to be it's kind of like a having a college degree you know in something and then you don't do that i'm case in point i have a college degree in film production the hell am i doing with that i i didn't uh, really pursue that i pursued other things and avenues and here i am i ended up being an airline pilot and and so but having that certificate is huge because are you a college graduate yes i am are you type rated yes i am okay so yeah, go for that. Uh, if, if you have that opportunity, that might be something you might want to look into. And the ATP's new agreement with Frontier Airlines. Well, Roger, you know, as a, a graduate from ATP, what can you tell me about that program? You know, you can, you've seen a few programs out there. Do you feel like that is one of the better flight school options out there right now? I think that the answer to that is going to kind of depend on the individual that's on the individual making those decisions. I ATP worked really well for me. I had, you know, like I just said, I had just graduated from college. I did my private and my instrument training while I was still in school. And so I went into the program a little bit later than most. And, you know, for, for those of you who don't know what ATP is, ATP is basically a program primarily that's going to take you from a, ha having a private certificate and then taking you all the way up through your CFIs um, and your multi-engine your multi and your CFIs. There is a program that will also get you your private, um, but most people go in with a private and start at the instrument. Yeah, I went in with my instrument. It worked really well. Here's the price for it and go but part of that is also is part of that cost you're going to get five hours in the seminal that's what it was when i was there at least you're gonna get five hours in the seminal to prepare you for your multi-engine check ride go and if you are not ready at five hours that's when some of the that's where some of the issues can arise if if, if you're ready for that and if you're ready to do some of your own legwork, if you're going to be a self-starter then that program will work very well. You get a flat, a flat cost and you're going to go and you're going to get all of your certificates. Yeah. If you need a little bit more, if you want to be able to go at more of your own pace, mm -hmm. if you're going to want to have the option to do a little bit of extras, um, 
extra flying, ATP is probably not going to be the best option for you because now you're outside of the of the model that they operate at. Yeah, it is a very, very impacted program. I mean, their homepage at atpflightschools.com, it says there, you know, it's catered for an airline career. So it's an airline career program. It's very fast paced. And they have a nine month fast track program. So right now they're advertising for $83,995. You can go from zero time to CFI with airline tuition reimbursement. So if you qualify, you can do this in a very short period of time. Now, $83,000 for an education, that's nothing to scoff at. That's a lot of money to put down. Um, And you're not doing this in a four-year college environment. You're doing this in nine months where you, like you said, you eat, breathe, sleep, aviation. And with minimal time, you're getting out there. That's why at, at one point when you were going through, and I remember I, when you and I talked about this decades ago when we were first uh, talking about our experiences when we first met and going in, at one point they wanted you to have a private or instrument at least and right. before you went in it because it is such a fast-paced environment that they wanted to make sure that you could at least go through the program and have a higher success rate. Uh, and now they're advertising from zero time all the way up, which is, it's kind of intimidating. Well, I think that that's partially, you know, probably just the the world that we live in now from the pilot shortage. You know, if you can give somebody a product that's going to take them from having nothing, like, hey, you don't need to come in with anything. We were, we're going to do this whole thing for you. Um, you know, and unfortunately, if people are going to wash out during that, during that program, which will which will be the case. That's just statistics. Mm-hmm. Um, they probably weren't going to be ready for the airline training anyway. Um, you know, and that being said, I mean, having you having heard you just say that for the young aviators out there trying to make decisions, I would say that in my personal experience, when I learned to fly uh, almost just the other day, almost 20 years ago, uh, I probably paid close to 80 to $85,000 to get my certificates. And that was 20 years ago, 20 years ago, which, and so if it's $85,000 to take you all the way up through the CFI, wasn't that what you said? 84, 995 or something. Yeah. 80, uh, $85,000 to go from zero to your CFI when that was what I probably spent 20 years ago, you know, with that's, that seems like a fairly phenomenal deal. That is a lot of money. That's, that's what it takes to, to learn to fly. But, but just you know, comparing those two things from twenty years ago, paying the same the same price twenty years later, I mean, that seems like a really if you're if you're into being an airline pilot or any you know kind of commercial uh, professional pilot, that that could be a a real good way to go. And then maybe you get a job with Frontier at the other end of it. Yeah, I mean, it, the 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 program sounds good. I'd like to speak to somebody that has either gone through it or is in it. Um, I went through a program, not an ATP school. I went through a, a different airline catered program that's actually no longer in existence. But um, similar options. It was, uh, I think, sixty nine thousand for me. It was a ten month program. Uh, it didn't have any kind of agreements with a major airline. It had hiring agreements with some of the regional airlines out there. Um, and I ended up 
applying and getting hired at Sandpiper, as we've mentioned before in the podcast, but I didn't use the agreement. I just got hired from the front door um, because I wasn't in that huge hurry because I found a pretty good job as a flight instructor and that's where you and I met. And, uh, but the programs that were around then have really been outdated because now it's all about, we're not just going to train you, we're going to hire you. And they're even, I read somewhere in that ATP website that they're talking about a fixed cost program here. Um, so I, I don't know the details of what's in, entailed with that, but yeah, because sometimes it starts out at 83995 and then they go, well, yeah, and now you need your multi-rated because ATP doesn't give you your single, I think, commercial. They just go, what do you need a single commercial for? You're going on an airline. I don't know any they airlines. Give you your, your single commercial because a lot of times where people are going to get their first job is they're going to be a flight instructor. And so in order to be a flight instructor in the single engine, you do a single engine commercial as well. Aha. Uh-huh. So then you got to do the multi, multi-commercial and then start working on your CFI and then double I. Yeah, except the order, the order is a little bit funny. Um, and this actually kind of tying these two things together. Um, I actually interviewed at Frontier Airlines about a year ago and them going through my logbook hmm. very much confused them because of the order of which ATP does their program because uh-huh. they are very multi-based. So my CFI initial was actually my MEI. So my, my initial, which I did with the FAA, was in a multi-engine airplane. And then I backtracked to do the single-engine commercial and the single-engine CFI. I gotcha. So it's very much multi-engine centric. Mm-hmm. But you do get the single-engine, but you do all the multi-stuff before you do the single. Yeah. I, and you would think that that would be easier because you've learned the more challenging aircraft first, the more complex aircraft well, first. Well, you know, those... Eights on pylon things and chandelles. Yeah, I'll, I'll take the multi-engine commercial over the single-engine commercial any day, to be honest with you. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, fair point. Very fair point. And then looking at their website, I saw something that caught my eye. Uh, they had a tag up at the other upper right-hand corner saying the airline pilot dot life. What is that? So I clicked on it, and it turns out that it is kind of a blog-centric, ATP-sponsored link that you can sign up for and their slug line is real answers from real pilots. So if you're thinking about flying out there or you're, you're in the process of getting your ratings and there's an avenue here sponsored by ATP with frequently asked questions, uh, you know, student experiences, flying the line, day in the life kind of thing. And it's all on this blog sponsored by ATP. So uh, again, there'll be a link in the show notes, but uh, if you're interested, check it out. So as we mentioned earlier, uh, I'm heading out this evening. Uh, we, uh, we had a kind of a late start today because I wanted to make sure I packed after not flying for a few weeks and uh, I had an ample opportunity to you know, get some rest in the middle of the day, which is crucial when you're flying a red eye. Um, it always kind of makes my hair on the back of my neck stand up when I meet with my, my pilot uh, captain or, or whatnot uh, in the cockpit on the very first leg of a red eye on the very first leg of a trip. And they're like, uh, like, so, you know, how are you? Did you commute in? You know, just the typical stuff. Have you had the Rona? You know, all the questions we ask each other now. And, uh, and then I go, so did you get a good nap in today? And, and they go, oh, no, no, no. I, I've been up since 6am. I'm like, oh, okay. 
minutes. We're going to, I'm going to have my eyes really on you because I hope you don't nod off. You know, it's, that's a long time to be awake. Uh, you know, the responsible thing to do is always to, to take a nap in the middle of the day. And I haven't slept so well <laughs> in a long time. I had a three and a half hour nap today. I was like, oh my God, it was just awesome. Um, I needed to start taking naps more often. <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah, so I'm all rested up and then we decided to you know meet up for this uh this quick podcast recording here. And so yeah, I'm ready to go. Roger, don't uh fear not. Uh I'm I'm good to go tonight. Uh, That's what he says, folks. You have no idea how many times we've had to try and record this while he edits out all of the uh faux pas that he's made. But that's the that's the the beauty of, you know, not being live. <laughs> <laughs> yes it is yeah. i just you know i'm just keeping it real for all the people out there to to let them know that we are not perfect and take aviator tony at his at his word and for what it's worth yeah yeah thanks a lot dude thanks a lot <laughs> no but you know speaking of rusty pilots you had sent me a really cool article uh just a few hours ago about how the airline pilots are now making more in-flight errors and they're a lot of the ASAP reports are that they're just rusty because of the pandemic. And in this article that you sent me from Hugo Martin, um, Yahoo News, uh, dated today, January 29, indicated that uh, there's some pilots that were having some difficulties. What can you <laughs> tell me about that? You know, it was it was an interesting it, it was an interesting article, um, you know, for me to read. And I, I and so that's why I forwarded it to you. Um, I didn't know who was going to make it in today's show, but, um, you know, I think, well, there's several, I guess there's a, at least a few things there. The first of which I, for whatever reason, when people fill out these ASAP reports at the airlines, this is what pilots at least are claiming as the reasons for the, for the blunders. Um, all of them very minor. Don't get me wrong. Um, there wasn't anything major in there and which are extremely rare. Um, but when we fill out those ASAP reports, basically to cover ourselves when, for when we do make mistakes in a significant or a sizable number of these, the explanation for why that blunder was made was I'm not flying as much, <laughs> which it's been a, it's been a while okay. since I flew and I, I didn't remember how to time my shoot, you know, but and, you know, it kind of ties into we talked about this on several episodes ago, um, maybe even a month or two about um, about errors that that pilots make. And then especially, I think, in terms of vacation and, you know, how you can go two or three weeks. And, you know, even I remember a little bit of that episode. My view of it has kind of changed because I remember being in the same category. You you'd go on a week and you you try and bid your vacation touching back when we had line bidding and you could go three weeks without flying getting back in the flight deck was a little bit intimidating doing what i do now i have a very different view of it i, you know, <laughs> I have a couple a couple theories on why that's the case but it did make me you know being a little bit of the the part 91 guy and i like to just kind of poke fun at the airline guys just because i can right now mm -hmm. um i laughed a little bit <laughs> I haven't been flying, guys. No shame. No shame. And I can't remember what to do. 
Well, we, we mentioned the, the ASAP program, and anybody that uh, you know is an aficionado of, of aviation has probably heard this term before. The ASAP program is a program by the FAA called the Aviation Safety Action Program. The goal of ASAP is to enhance aviation safety through the prevention of accidents and incidents. Its focus is to encourage voluntary reporting of safety issues and events that come to the attention of the employees of certain certificate holders. Notice I said employees, not pilots. Any airline employee can file an ASAP. To encourage an employee to voluntarily report safety issues, even though they may involve an alleged violation of Title 14 of the Code of Federal Regulations, or 14 CFR, that's the Aviation Bible for those that don't know, the enforcement-related in- incentives have been designed into the program, and ASAP is based on a safety partnership that will include the FAA, the certificate holder, and may include a third party, such as an employer's labor organization or union. So I've filled out ASAPs before. Um, any pilot that's been on the line for a- any amount of time, uh, at an airline at least, knows that the ASAP program exists. They tell you about it day one. Now, if you intentionally violate an FAR and you go, well, I'll just ASAP it, that's not how it works. <laughs> you're you're going to get the book thrown at you. But if there's a series of events that turn out to generate an error, whether that's yourself as a pilot, air traffic controller, a ground handler, it doesn't matter. If there's a safety-related issue and it comes to your attention, you forget to reset your altimeter is is a prime example. That was a hot button item for the ASAP committee uh, for years. You're going through 18,000 feet, at least here in the U.S., and uh, you forget to reset your altimeters to standard 2992 barometric pressure, and you end up leveling off, say, at 21,000 feet, and air traffic control says, uh, legacy, say altitude, and you're like, what? Oh, crap. We're still at 3001. We, oh, oh, uh, um, standby, you know, so then you got to say, okay, I, you know, we're, we're at whatever, 21.5 or 21.3, whatever it is. And, you know, heading back down. Okay. So obviously you've now had a, a violation. So nothing really too bad unless there was a near miss or something, or you had something bad happen, especially in RBSM, it's a little bit more complicated. But, uh, so what do you do when you land? The captain fills out an ASAP, the first officer fills out an ASAP, and the air traffic controller may or may not fill out an ASAP because possibly something that they did uh, was erroneous. So by the collection of these reports, now both the FAA and the companies that are involved or certificate holder uh, can then go, okay, how can we make this not happen again? How can we heightened safety. So that's what the program does. It, it's a great program. Uh, here in the future, I do hope to have someone from Legacy Airlines ASAP committee on the show to give us a little bit more detail about what the program does. I did have the privilege of flying with, very recently, uh, one of our ASAP committee members at Legacy Airlines. And what he told me was something that for years I had not known, which is it's not only about flying. And it's not only about safety of, I did something wrong and I want to cover myself because if you fill out an ASAP and you didn't intentionally do something wrong and there were many multiple factors that led up to the situation, they just pretty much say, okay, thank you for the report. Slap me on the wrist. You're not going to get violated because, you know, we've, we've agreed that it was 
an error and you trapped it and uh, you were able to correct it and what whatever. But it's not a get out of jail free card. That's number one. Uh, because even if it wasn't intentional, if it created a major problem, someone's going to have to do something, you know, either retraining or whatnot. Worst case scenario, the ASAP will not protect you from a violation if there's intent or, um, you, you know, the event happened because of gross negligence. But what was interesting that I didn't know was if you see something out on the ramp and you're like, that's a safety issue, you can ASAP that. It's not always uh, because I did something wrong. It could be, hey, I have an idea to do something better. And that is the ASAP reporting that is often not talked about and not understood. And so we're going to do our best to get more detail about that on a future show. But that's really, you know, we started talking about rusty pilots and we're talking about just ASAP reports when they do something wrong. And, And this article that you sent me, Roger, was an example of a pilot preparing to pull uh, a passenger jet away from the airport gate and they forgot to disengage the parking brake and damage was a part uh, of the experience because the towing vehicle was trying to pull the airplane and, and they broke the landing gear basically. Um, so their ASAP was, Oh, I I'm rusty because of Corona. I, I haven't flown in a while and I was rusty. Um, so I got to admit, I've seen a very similar, potentially just as disastrous thing happen with me on the flight deck. Uh, I was flying with a captain to be unnamed uh, about a year ago, and he was a newer captain and kind of new to the base. We discussed that before the flight, and when he got on the headset, the ground personnel said, all right, captain, uh, you know, uh, we're all ready for pushback. We see the parking brake is set, gear pins installed, whatever, whatever they say. And the captain looked at me, gave me the thumbs up. I called for a ramp to get clearance for pushback, which I did. As soon as we got clearance for pushback, I gave him the thumbs up and the instructions. And the captain's response on the intercom to the ground personnel in the tug was, all right, parking brake release, steering disengage, you're cleared to push, or whatever he said. And I look over, and the parking brake was not disengaged. So I immediately went, put my hands up, got his attention. I, you know, I was like, no, no, the park. And so he let go of the parking brake immediately. And uh, the ground personnel responded as soon as that happened going, are you sure the parking brake's disconnected? Because they have an indicator light on the nose gear that indicates whether or not the parking brake is engaged or disengaged. And their job is to make the appropriate uh comment on the intercom, get the appropriate response from the captain that the parking brake is indeed disengaged, and then verify, once they're clear to push, that the light is, is not illuminated. That indicates that the parking brake is on. So they did their job. The safety barriers were in place, even though the captain misspoke um, and said that without physically releasing the parking brake. And even though that I luckily was paying attention and I saw it and I got his attention, he almost immediately released the brake. That could have resulted in some serious aircraft damage. So this is the Swiss cheese model we've talked about, those barriers. And so now every single time I'm in a cockpit, wherever I'm doing, I stop. And when I hear park and brake released, steering disengaged from my captain, my eyes immediately go to what we call the triple indicator or the parking brake 
uh, pressure indicated indicator. And I look to verify that it's indeed disengaged, not really part of my responsibility. It's not part of my flow, but because we're both liable in the situation in the cockpit or in the flight deck that I do my best to have that as part of my flow so that I won't be a part of anything like that in the future. That's part of, you know, learning from your own personal experiences and mistakes that almost, that almost happen. You know, we learn a lot that way. You know, hopefully we're learning from other people's mistakes. It's always better to do that. Yes. And kind of going back to the ASAP program, that's what that ASAP program is all about. It is a fantastic program. And really all that it's about is improving airplane and airline safety. Because at, at its heart, it's okay, where we know that a problem happened, but whatever it was, where are there, you know, where is there a, a track record of the same of those same incidents or those same events happening? And is that something that, uh, that the airline or as the airline industry as a whole has to address? Because that's how we can learn. And if we take all of this data, because we have the technology to do it now, we can take all this data across Delta Airlines, Southwest Airlines, American, Frontier, Atlas, whatever, you know, whoever those things are, we can take it across an entire industry and say, look, these are where we're having as a pilot group. These are where we're having some safety issues. These are the safety issues on a ramp. Like you were talking about, Hey, you know, I don't think that this ramp, um, that this ramp procedure is very safe and we can address, address that as well. And I think that the interesting thing to me, going back to that article is, you know, when we write up an ASAP report, we, okay, well, what happened? And we give our interpretation of why it happened. And, you know, well, is because I haven't been flying as much. I, I think a, an interesting question would be, is there actually, has there been more ASAP reports filed? Let's, let's take the reason for their filing out. But since COVID has started, has there been more ASAP reports filed? Beca and, and, and would that, would the reason for that maybe be because we're a little bit more rusty? Because to me, if we've got the same amount of ASAP reports filed over the past 12 months as the as as the average over the past five years as well you know is it really a rusty pilot or is it really rusty pilots or is it actually just that that happened to be the excuse that they wrote down because it was the easiest thing to to blame it on yeah you know i think the latter is more of the truth because i mean for me personally and i know you and i have discussed this in the past if we haven't flown for a while that first leg back is always a little bit, maybe not intimidating uh, being the right word, but there's always a little bit more precaution taken. It's a little different. Yeah. You can feel it. Yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of cool because it's like, oh, wow, I haven't done yeah. this in a while, you know? And, and for me, at least, you know, there's a smile on my face as we rotate, you know, 180,000 pound aircraft off 2-5 right in uh, Los Angeles and it's in my leg and I'm like, you know, maybe one rotate like, oh, this is awesome. You know, I always, it doesn't matter. I've been doing this for 20 years. I freaking love that experience. And when you haven't done it in a while, I think you appreciate it more and you can appreciate you the severity of the responsibility of commanding all those people, all that fuel, all that equipment, all those millions of dollars on every leg. And it's a great feeling, but it can be. I guess intimidating is, is, is going to be a good word after all. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think that even, even when you're flying in general aviation, if you haven't flown in a while, that first leg, like you mentioned, it's, it's going to, you're going to respect it 
a little bit more. Well, I think that the that's kind of the interesting thing, you know, comparing general aviation, you know, your weekend warriors, if you will, to the airlines and maybe why airline pilots have a little bit more of a fear factor or intimidation to that first leg back is because it becomes so rote at the airline level. And I think that that's why airline pilots in general, and this is just a hypothesis, nothing against earth theory and nothing against airline pilots. I've done it. I've been this, I've been this person before, but everything is so rote and it's almost like airlines have tried to take a lot of the flying and decisions away from the pilots in order to try and make it safer. But in the course of trying to make it safer, we've kind of made it so rote that it is easier to overlook things like a parking brake before you're before you're going to get pushed off the gate yeah. or or any number of other things. Whereas if you're more like you don't have you don't fly quite as much as the airline guys, or you're more the weekend the GA weekend warrior, you have a little bit more respect for it because you're like every time you get on the airplane, you're like, okay, what's gonna happen? Yeah. I gotta be ready for it. Whereas, you know. I mean, let's face it, I, you know, when I was an airline pilot and you probably would agree to this is if you've been flying a four day and then you had four days off and came back for a four day and you've done that for 10 years of your life or 20 years of your life. It's a little different. Yeah. It's like getting in the car and driving. I can't believe I'm taking off at 200,000 pounds. It's just not the same. Um, and so it's a lot easier to overlook things. And because of that, I think that some, that sometimes like the COVID and the, the rusty aspect of it can become a little bit more pronounced at the airline level. Um, because of, because we try to make it so much safer and we take so much stuff out of the pilot's hands and all of a sudden it's a little bit new and new and different, except it's expected to be wrote all at the same time. Yeah. So I think the, there's a balance between. Uh, if you're off for a while to give yourself at least an afternoon or an hour or two on your time off to kind of just go over, you know, the company emails and and some things in your head. You know, we've mentioned training many times in the podcast. How do you prepare for recurrent training? How do you prepare for uh, getting a new type rating, a long-term training? And a lot of that has to come with just consistency. If you don't crack a book, but once a year or maybe once every nine months when you're in for recurrent, it, you know, if you've been on that same airplane for 20 years, okay, I get it. But if you haven't and you've only been on the airplane maybe a, a year or two or three, uh, yeah, you should be at least once a month, you know, pick a page. You're in route, pick a page on your EFB and kind of peruse through anything that may have changed or just knock the rust off and, and keep your tool, your mind, your tool well sharpened. Um, in this industry, it's all about protecting your certificate and your medical so that you can have a long career doing what you love. And in order to do that, you got to keep your tool sharp. And you're right that there's a lot of that intimidation factor that corporate or private pilots might feel on a regular basis because maybe they haven't flown as often or they, they're not doing the same, like you said, rote thing every day. Uh, and you had, you had, uh, posed the question, you know, have we seen an increase in ASAPs? Further down in this article that we were talking about from the IATA or the International Air Transport Association, a trade group for the world's airlines reported a steep increase last spring in the rate of planes making unstabilized approaches, which typically occur when pilots try to land at too high of a speed or without 
enough thrust to have made the last-minute adjustments. The airline group reported that a rate of unstabilized approaches jumped from about 13 or 14 for every 1,000 flights before the pandemic to 35 per 1,000 flights in May. The problem of unstabilized approaches increased in airports around the world in the spring and summer of 2020. The group said, but the rate returned to pre-pandemic levels in the last few months. So they did see an increase. They did see a spike. But in the last few months, it looks like they're returning back to normal. Well, I think that that's... uh, And let me ask you, let me ask you, because I think you'd brought this up. I don't know if it was in an episode um, or just talking amongst ourselves. But immediately after this all started and there were zero passengers on the airplanes. Are you used to, from an unstabilized st- approach standpoint, are you used to carrying more power? Because is... now you, you have a fraction of the weight that you normally had. And now if you, you kind of use those same numbers, you know, I typically, about 51% N1s about where I'm going to be for my approach. That's just something that I have in the airplane that I fly right now. Mm-hmm. If I were to use that, except now I'm, I don't, I have 150 less passengers on the airplane. Yeah. Does that make a big difference in your, in your approach, in your flare, in an unstabilized all, approach? All of it. Your rotation. I mean, I can remember coming out of, coming out of Los Angeles, when you're departing towards the West, there are two altitude restrictions on almost every single departure procedure because of a VFR corridor that exists off the shoreline out of Los Angeles. And now are those at or below or at or above? At or below 3,000 oh. and at or below 5,000. Oh, this should be good. So, yeah. So on an Airbus A320, 319, 321, it doesn't really matter. With, even with a, a lightly loaded aircraft, those altitude crossing restrictions are never really a problem. I mean, maybe with a 777 or a 75 that's maybe not loaded, yeah, I could see how they'd have to really be cautious about those altitude restrictions. But on an, on an Airbus, it's never really been an issue. And I can remember we had one passenger flying in a Neo to Cabo, LA to Cabo. This was months and months back. And we actually, we talked about this on the episode with my one passenger on board and the captain was, it was really cool. He uh, made all PAs addressed to that passenger by name. It was like <laughs> a corporate, 170 plus uh, seat corporate jet. <laughs> so, uh, so we, we took off and it was the captain's leg. We decided the captain was going to fly and we mentioned it in the briefing uh, that we were very light. And, you know, those altitude restrictions may be a problem. And he goes, yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. We're going to be cognizant of that. And sure enough, as soon as we got to about 2,800 feet, I went altitude, altitude. And he looked over and he went, oh, he was still hand flying. And he nosed the airplane over. Holy crap. And not, not aggressively, but it was like, we were still about a mile away from that first point. So he noses the, the airplane over a little bit. And, you know, at the, we were, we already had perform the uh alti- the thrust reduction altitude was already done so we were in climb thrust so it's not like we were in toga or anything so we're in climb thrust so he knows the, o- the airplane over we crossed it at three thousand 
and a half feet. <laughs> and I was like, okay, you're, you're clear. <laughs> so then you okay, brought the nose back up and here comes 5,000 feet, which was the second altitude restriction. And that one he crossed at about 4,800 feet. And I went, he goes, oh my God, thank, you know, I didn't even notice. We talked about it. You know, we briefed it. Uh, you know, you even mentioned it and he still, he goes, I'm just in such this rote as you There's mentioned, wrote. yeah, you just, you know, go through the motions. You're an airline pilot. You go through the motions. Every flight has to be same the same. Airport. Same airport. Same airport, same airplane. Everything. And if I hadn't said anything, there's no doubt that he would have, you know, been above that 3,000 foot restriction uh, because that airplane was climbing <laughs> rapidly with one passenger on board, you know. Because you're at that point, what, 30 to 40,000 pounds less? Uh, oh, at least, Yeah. I mean, our landing numbers, we had to do a, what they called a, a landing assessment because we had like a couple knot tailwind. And when I had to put in the weight of the aircraft, uh, the, the proposed landing weight of the aircraft, it was off the chart. We weren't, we were lighter Whoa. than the lightest, was, <laughs> we were lighter than the lightest number on the landing chart to see if, you know, can we land with a five knot tailwind, whatever it was. And I was like, well, yeah, we can do it because <laughs> we're lighter than the, the lowest. Chart in the- <laughs> Yep, so yeah. Yeah, so you, when you're 50,000 pounds lighter, I'm sure that that airplane probably wants to climb. Yeah. Pretty well. Yeah. So you got to be careful. And, and I think that you're absolutely right, Roger. Thank you for saying that. Is a lot of those numbers I don't think were for rusty pilots. I think those numbers were for because our loads were different. Uh, we were preoccupied with the airline industry. We were preoccupied with, you know, who's been exposed, who's got COVID, who's, you know, personal so, health. Yeah, Family. all of this. You know, there was a lot going on at the beginning of this. Yes. And, and that fear of the unknown really did creep its way onto the flight deck. And I think that's where a lot of those numbers that IATA had put out came from. Now, of course, I'm speculating because I, I'm no statistician. I, I don't have the sure. data. I don't, I don't know. But as a person who's been doing this, uh, yourself included, been doing this for 20 years, yeah, I can see how the things like that can happen pretty yeah. easily. And now we're kind of returning, as we mentioned uh, at the onset of the show, we're kind of returning back to higher numbers. I mean, we're still not there. We're only something like I think the last number I saw was 73 percent of the loads from 2019, uh, which is, hey, that's that's great. Let's keep it going. Let's keep it up. Just convince people to buy airline tickets like they bought toilet paper at the beginning of this thing and we'll all be fine. <laughs> we'll all be fine. We'll all be fine. You just buy those airline tickets because as soon as the as soon as everyone has a vaccine, those destinations are going to be full and those ticket prices are going up. So you better buy them now. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can all hope and dream, right? Yeah. Well, you know, it, I I am very privileged that I still have a job that I get to show up to work and in probably the next four hours, I'll be in an airplane uh, flying a red eye to Philadelphia where it's fricking cold. And you know what? A Jimmy Crackhorn. I just don't care. It, I just feel privileged that I have the ability to do it. Um, and I know, you know, you feel the same that we've talked about this job and, and how lucky we've been. And there's so many Absolutely. of those out there that have not been as lucky as us. And, and our hearts and prayers go out to those people and our thanks to the first responders. You know, we kind of, you know, talking about how lucky we both are. Um, you know, Tony, you just mentioned it. 
I, I feel the same way. And from the bottom of my heart to, to everybody that this has affected, whether they've lost their job, their income, family, friends, lives, um, we do realize that this is real and, and all the best to everybody out there. We do hope that this turns around, not just for the airline industry, but for everybody out there, because this, it's been a year now and it's definitely, it's changed the world. It's changed, you know, our mental, mental health and well-beings. And yeah, I just thought I'd throw that in there real quick. You know, my sister, my sister's a nurse and, um, kind of, it's probably about a month ago, right around Christmas in, I had never, I knew, but I, it was almost like I ignored it. Um, or I didn't want to know the ignorance is bliss thing, but then, you know, she sent me a text, you know, how a couple de- a couple days she drove home from work crying because of what she saw working at a hospital. Yeah. And it is real. I know this has nothing to do with aviation, but, um, it, it is real and uh, all the best to everybody out there. And hopefully we are going to see the, the other side of this yeah. sometime soon. Yeah. And it's so important to mention, and thank you for mentioning that, um, that there's so many pilots out there that I've have the privilege of flying with um, feel that it's not as important or it's not as crucial as the news media or politicians or you know the people in general of certain party or or, or not uh, feel that it is. It is. I, I mean, it's affecting all of us, and if. I, I've, I've heard the stories, you know, I've met your sister, you know, I've, I'm so impressed with what, what she does. Um, we have many friends here uh, that are also in, in both nursing and in the hospitals, in the medical field. Uh, my neighbor's brother, uh, his job is, he's a, a technician at one of our local hospitals. His job is to clean up the rooms after a COVID patient is leaving the room for whatever reason before they can bring in another patient. Talk about the most dangerous, the most exposed job out there. He cleans hospital rooms for a living. He's been doing it since the beginning of the pandemic. And thank God he has not been affected by it. Um, you know, who knows? Maybe he got it early on. We don't know. But I mean, we were talking just yesterday about, about all the people that are affected. My neighbors around here that have come down with it. Um, Thankfully, I have not lost anyone uh, directly, but we have friends that have, that have last, have, has lost uh, parents and uh, grandparents to this. And it's, you don't know how it affects you until you get it. It, That's the bad thing about this thing. It's the scary part. You know, and hopefully in the next 90 days, as more and more people get vaccinated, and uh, we can start to see some relief. I know California's uh, lifted a few of their lockdown restrictions. Now we can actually go to a restaurant and eat outdoors, um, which which is a good thing. I know California's been in the limelight here in, in the last few months uh, with the lockdowns and the number of cases. We have more cases than than any other state right now, um, even with the lockdowns. So. Yeah, this is a serious thing. It's affected not just our industry, like like what you said, Roger. Um, it's affected all of us in one way, shape, or form. And we do appreciate all of those frontline workers and, and anyone that just has to go to work. They, they don't have the luxury to take an extra day off and stay home. They got to pay the bills. 
anybody and everybody. Yeah. You know, recently I got an email from one of our loyal listeners and oh my God, I was so excited. I love, I love getting feedback. Uh, and he writes that, uh, Hey guys, I've been listening to your show, your podcast lately, and it's great. Congrats. Uh, he further goes on to say he's a 737 NG and Max captain. And I would like to clarify that the problem with the Max was that the MCAS was receiving only information from one AOA sensor. That was for the entire fleet. What Legacy Airlines probably had installed was the AOA warning if the discrepancy happened between the two sensor readings. Again, congrats on the podcast and keep them coming. So, you know, thank you so much for that feedback. I, I keeping it anonymous because I don't know if uh, they want that information out there. But um, yes, uh, Rob and I discussed uh, in detail all about the Max, and even though we had an option at Legacy Airlines uh, that both AOA sensors fed information in MCAS, uh, Rob did explain that although both of them fed information, if just one of those AOAs went bad, it could trigger that MCAS reaction. Um, and so the software was the fix, as we mentioned in the earlier podcast. Uh, and, you know, thank goodness that that airplane is back flying and it's exciting to hear uh, how some of the uh, carriers that have been flying those airplanes are now not only returning them to the skies, but now fulfilling those orders that Boeing so desperately needed to have filled because of the you know the backlash from all the cancellations from the previous orders. So you know helping out Boeing, I think, is crucial not only to our industry but uh, to our economic growth for our country for countries around the world to have airplanes flying. And and yeah, the MAX is a great airplane. Uh, and thank you so much for that feedback as well. Well, we hope that you've enjoyed this episode of the Squawk Ident podcast. If you find value in our podcast and you'd like to help us out, please visit our website at aviatortony.com. That's Alpha, Victor, the number eight, Romeo, Tango, Oscar, November, Yankee.com. There you are encouraged to scroll down and check out ways you can contribute to our show by becoming a producer with a one-time or recurrent contribution. Every little bit helps. You can also leave us audio feedback with show topics that you'd like us to cover. You can also view some of the many photos that we've shared from the flight line. And under the guestbook tab, you can view images from our featured guests. Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube users can find us under the Squawk Ident podcast. We encourage you to support us on YouTube with a like, subscribe, and a share. In closing, I'd like to say thank you so much for taking the time to listen to these grateful aviators. Keep the dirty side down out there, be safe, and take care of each other. Bye, y'all. All the best, everybody. See ya, and thank you for all of you do.